Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, you would open our hearts to hear your voice unto us this morning. We pray that uh, you would bless my words, that they would be your words for your people, and that you would help us to live this passage well in light of uh, where we are at in the world today and what you have called us to. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Velma, for reading that. Thank you, Janice, also for that announcement. As I was uh, preparing for this message, uh, again, my Acts sermons, uh, the passages have been slotted for kind of months in advance. And uh, as I came to this passage, I was thinking it would be easy to make this passage uh, focused primarily on the very famous rescue of Peter and, you know, the, the presence of the angel and all of that, which is, which is very exciting, and the, the triumphant return. And almost there's a humorous passage. We didn't read it, but there's a humorous moment where Peter does show up back at the church and they don't really believe it's him. And, and the girl opens the door and then shuts it again in his face and then runs off. Uh, we, could, we could focus on that. And, and indeed, that's the, the majority of what this passage is about. But the text starts with a very, very important point. And it won't let us ignore that point. In fact, the, the chapter is bookended by Herod on both sides of this moment with Peter. It goes out of its way to inform us of James's murder right before this awesome angelic encounter that Peter has. And it's indicating that the tension is ramping up, that even for one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, who would have great faith that he's not immune to real evil in the world. He's not granted immunity simply on the basis of his faith uh, against persecution. And that raises a really important question. Why does God rescue Peter but not James? And by extension, we could ask, why are some people healed and others not healed? Or why does the good person fall while the wicked one like Herod seems to prevail. And this question of wrestling with God's goodness in the midst of evil is a question that's raised all through the ages. And it's a question I think all of us end up asking at some point in our lives. You can imagine as Peter shows up back at the church and people are celebrating, James's family's probably there grieving. Why would this happen? The Bible's good at not letting us just get away with this sense that, well, it's just all going to work out for everybody. It intentionally points us back to James. And we're reminded that we live in a broken world, that things are not all as they should be. In this world, Jesus himself told us we would have trouble. Things would not always go as we expected. There is heartache and there's greed and there's pride and there's failure there's early and unexpected death there's persecution there's many things that would make us anxious and afraid and angry but thankfully the bible doesn't leave us to just sort of sit in our anxiety or our anger or our fear it tells us an answer it provides a way forward Think of Psalm 23, which is 
uh, a familiar passage, a passage we often will read at a funeral. Psalm 23 does not say he removes from my presence all my enemies, but rather he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies are still present. The trouble's still present. The difficulty's still there. But despite and even in the midst of the real trouble in the psalmist's life, God invites him and God invites us to respond first to the invitation to his table, to find his comfort and his joy and the generosity of salvation before him, to seek that first even in the midst of trouble. And so what the Bible emphasizes and what the church affirms is that Jesus is present and he's faithful even in the midst of our hardships. He's here with us by his spirit. And we know that one day he will come and set his world right. And so this exchange, this exchange between uh, James just briefly at the beginning and then the longer section with Peter and then Herod at the beginning and the end, it should point us to our great hope we have in Jesus. Not just that he's present in the difficulty, and there are moments where there is miraculous healing and salvation, but also that our hope is not in perfect health here and now, but in the coming resurrection of Jesus, where our bodies will be made whole and restored and healed in God's new creation. And where justice can be done properly, by God himself against those who commit evil. After all, the passage ends with Herod getting his due, doesn't it? Not from the church rising up to take him out, but God himself dealing with evil in its own time. So what then of the tragedy? What of James's family likely weeping for him? How do we as Christians respond then to the heartache that happens in life? How do we respond to the brokenness or the anger or the fear in our own hearts? In short, where do broken hearts go? And where especially when we feel failed? Thankfully, we're reminded again that our hope and faith is not in people. Our hope is in Jesus. That God the Son has come down into the brokenness of our world and into the brokenness of your life and mine and that he holds us and he gathers us and he brings our sorrow and sadness and fear to the Father that he binds the brokenhearted and that he's present even in the valley whether we feel we're experiencing horrible loss like James or a victorious moment of joy and freedom like Peter and that reality that God holds us in our losses and in our sadness, is worth holding fast. I think these past two weeks have been some of the hardest in my last 10 years of pastoring. God's word says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we speak and what we focus on can reveal the brokenness in our own hearts. And that picture is not always pretty. That we're reminded our church is in a place of needing healing that we're broken people and we need together to know the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the hope of God for us. 
in Ross Hastings' book, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? He says this about being the church. He says, the church isn't perfect. It takes humility to be part of the life of the church because we aren't perfect either on this side of the new creation. But for all its faults and failings, the church is still the greatest plan God has for humanity and for its salvation. As a pastor, I've known the faults of the church more intimately than most. It and everyone in it is still in the redemption process. This is the heart of the Christian gospel, that in Christ, the one who has become one with us and has stood in our place, we are made righteous and we are regenerated to be formed towards justice. And above all, we are adopted sons and daughters of the Father who reflect his forgiving and comforting character to a broken world. The church is to be a community that goes out to the grieving and broken and that draws others into the heart of the God who is on the lookout for his broken, rebellious, but also wounded children. Churches that reflect the Father heart of God are havens of refuge and communities of comfort with specific ministries for the healing of the broken. The very nature of the kingdom of God, which the church inhabits and proclaims is one of relief from and reversal of the effects of the fall. Jesus describes this in Luke 4, using the language of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The church isn't perfect. We have cracks. We're broken. Yet because of Jesus, we are made righteous and regenerated to work towards the proclamation of good news, to go to the broken. And going to the broken or opening our doors to the broken means putting the mission of Jesus first in our hearts. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? And Jesus' point is this, that following him requires a transfer of our allegiance. That's what it means to, to hate one's own family and one's own life. It means to follow Jesus in an act of cross-bearing. And bearing a cross means to lay down one's life for the lives of others. As Jesus goes on in Luke 9, 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we've not counted the cost of following Jesus, we will turn away at the threat of sacrifice and find something else to gratify our desires or our motives or our idols. No, the church isn't perfect. We have cracks. We're broken. Yet because of Jesus, we are righteous and regenerated to work towards the proclamation of good news, to go to the broken, 
to extend hospitality, grace, and yes, even welcoming to the sinner and to the lost, to have the heart of God of compassion for his world. Now, what does that look like? Well, Luke 10, 25 to 37 tells us. I'm going to read this passage in the message. There was a religious scholar who stood up with a question to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus answered, well, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love your, your Lord, your God, with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds, and then he lifted him onto his own donkey and led him to the inn and made him comfortable. And In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think, said Jesus? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly. The religion scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. So these three for us today. First, the reminder that in brokenness, God is with us just as he is with James's grieving family, just as he's present in Peter's deliverance, God promises his presence in our fear and anger and sorrow and the hope of resurrection for life to come. Second, the reminder that as a church, we are broken and we are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation, a willingness to talk to each other, to maintain the unity of love as we seek to follow Jesus. And third, Jesus calls us to devote our lives to him and to his gospel, to go out of our way to care for our neighbor. In his song, God of Justice, Aaron Keyes puts it this way, we must go, live to feed the hungry, to stand beside the broken. We must go, stepping forward, Keep us from just singing, but move us into action. We must go. So may that be our prayer as we move in forgiveness and grace to one another and to our neighbors. Or in the words of the ancient prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, 
to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, and it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that you are present with us in our brokenness, that you are present in the good times, in the celebration and the victories of Peter, but also, Lord, you are faithful in present in the grieving and in the sadness of James. Lord, that you promise your faithfulness to us, even in our own brokenness. And our hope is not in people, but, Lord, our hope is found ultimately in you. Lord, we thank you that because of you, we can be made righteous and made whole and renewed. Lord, that our ultimate hope is in your good grace and in the hope of your resurrection. And Lord, we pray that as you would call us to follow you, we would be reminded again of what it means to take up our cross, to follow you, to count that cost and to go out of our way to care for the broken and for the vulnerable. Lord, we ask that as we would come to this table today, you would work in our hearts and remind us of the table you prepare, even in the brokenness, that you invite us to to your hospitality, you welcome us unto yourself. And because we are invited, undeserving, so we are to invite others undeserving to know your grace and your presence and your forgiveness and your love. We ask this in your name. Amen.